the Progressive Podiatry Project, here to share knowledge, insights and information for you to improve your clinical practice and most importantly, help you help your clients. Welcome back to another episode of the Progressive Podiatry Project podcast. My name is Jackson Tisdell and with me is Talisha Reeve and we're super excited this week to be launching the Plantar Fasciopathy Masterclass online course. Um, to find out more about that, head to progressivepodiatryproject.com slash PF masterclass. Um, it looks really good. I've been through it myself to just put a lot of hard work into it and it is absolutely fantastic. Um, and to off the back of that, um, we're going to go through a few of the key sort of points that we really want to, um, or we feel is really helpful to understand about plantar fasciopathy today. Um, and with a few key questions um, that I'm going to direct towards Talisha, first of all, how you doing, Talisha? How's the um, how's the work nerd brain going after <laughs> off the course? It is exhausted. It um, because it's been twelve months since we launched the exercise therapies course. I think I forgot how much your brain is just completely fried by the end of it. It sort of flashback to final year uni when you're cramming for every single exam and it's just that cognitive overload so this week very much enjoying just chilling out because my brain is tired but the launch went really well um we've had i think well over 50 people sign up already and the feedback that's coming in is actually quite good so i'm pretty stoked with it and yeah could talk about plantar fasch all day every day Oh, we could go, we could talk about it all week. It's, um, I don't, I know from myself, like I've been practicing for like six years. This is my sixth year now. Um, and I feel as though we've, I was speaking to uh, one of our sports doctors about this this week. I feel as though throughout your career, you just go through um, ebbs and flows of what you do and what you don't do for plantar fasciopathy. And you sort of go through phases of, of, oh, I'm doing this really well. And then you go through a period of, oh, this is, really frustrating me like what am I doing wrong and um and, and I don't <laughs> I hope hopefully that this course that we've we've produced or is gonna um just settle some of that for some people and give you a bit more confidence in making decisions and um I know myself personally at the moment like I've had a lot coming in and I'm just um yeah some of them I'm just really struggling with um and uh, sort of forces you to sort of maybe go back to basics of getting your diagnosis right so that's what we're going to go into with this podcast so um do you have anything to add to that before we begin well not a profound amount but i do very much agree with the yeah you'll find that you you might be kind of in one flow with what you're doing and it's working with that lot of presentations that you're seeing but yeah then you'll get another run of a different client group or different set of patients and yeah things aren't working and it's very easy for us to forget that it is such a multifaceted pathology with so many risk factors, so many people, like diverse cohorts that it can affect. And yeah, it really influences. If we kind of forget that initially, it has the flow on effect as we're going through the treatment process that we may miss the key bits of information that actually lead to the positive treatment outcomes and avoid that frustration that we'll often feel. Yep. hundred percent. I'm keen to, uh, keen to get into it and throw some, throw some juicy ones at you. So first question, given that plantar heel pain can be so complex, um, with multifactorial 
things that you just spoke about, like where do you feel is, if there is one, where do you feel is the best place to start when someone first presents to you? And I guess what I mean by that is what information do you need to know? Is there, are there some key things um, before you dive into a treatment plan? Yes, that definitely is a good question. No rambling um, allowed. <laughs> okay, so it's definitely because, okay, so two of the main things would be the immediate and long-term activity history because that will sort of dictate where the next steps in the process go. And so what I mean by this is we can have, um, well, if we think back to the sort of different populations or client groups that plantar fasciopathy can affect, so we may have the active population or the older and or sedentary populations. Now, so with that, if you've got someone who's quite active, they can have, their presentation might be different. So they might have a long-term history of a high amount of activity and then their acute or more recent activity history, that's relevant. Whereas if we're looking at someone who's quite sedentary, regardless of their age, is it might be a chronically underloaded tissue that's gone through an acute overload, or we may have in an active cohort, a chronically healthy tissue that's gone through an acute overload, or it's a chronically overloaded tissue. So the long-term and the short-term activity history, I feel that's the most important place to start, regardless of how long the symptoms have been around for. Symptoms are relevant, but that will give you an indication on, again, if you're dealing with a healthy tissue that may have been experiencing an acute overload or a chronically underloaded tissue that's gone through an acute flare, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So you sort of look at the acute to chronic workload ratio, I guess you could, is, is oh, it related to that or is that different? It's a similar way to look at it, but it would be very different. So when we're talking about the acute chronic workload ratio, that's still more recent, but um, because especially with pathologies of chronicity, so Achilles tendinopathy, plantar fasciopathy, the tissue changes, it can be sort of an underlying pathology of chronicity that people aren't aware of at the time that they're heading towards. And it might be years that it's been bubbling away under the surface until they reach that threshold for an active or reactive pathology. So um, similar approach but the time frame might be considerably different or longer yep so activity history short term and, and long term yep. um what else what else is important to know it would be then you start to look at some of their other risk factors that might be at play so them as a person so the other risk factors that you'll look at. So we've got, okay, so we've explored their activity history and then, okay, what other factors may be feeding into the problem? So this is where you would be honing in on probably the situation or the circumstances surrounding the more acute flare of the injury, right? So what have you been doing in the time around and the time preceding symptom onset? So this is where we explore um, more in depth, their recreational activities, their occupational activities, their footwear, um, any changes in activities, any life stresses. So it's, again, step one is more so the chronic and acute activity history. 
And then we start to hone in on the risk factors that might be relevant to that sort of acute phase. And again, when I say acute phase, it's the, you may even look at it sort of two to three months prior to symptom onset. So when I say acute in that sense, it's not like an acute injury onset. It's the more immediate timeframe surrounding when symptoms presented, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's when you would ask, like, have you put on weight recently? Have you um have you tried worn different shoes have you um has anything in your job or your exercise changed in the last few weeks when since this has flared up like you're looking for um very obvious signs of of what might have caused this so to speak yes definitely yeah cool um anything else on top of that it's well maybe not so much what's on top of that but why that's relevant is because it starts to trickle down into what we may then need to assess so it's the activity history because if we this is where we start to think about the calm things down build things up so for someone if they're in that more chronically either healthy or chronically overloaded active individual going through an acute flare they may be a calm it down and do the approach may be more load management related as far as activities go then for someone else if it's a chronically underloaded tissue it may be more calming down initially but then actually needing to build things up and what we need to do to build things up in the active versus sedentary client groups is quite different with our long-term management approach so it's Mm. Yeah, again, the risk factor exploration is quite important because that will start to give an idea on if we're dealing with more of a tensile-driven pathology or a compressive-driven pathology. And again, that will also subsequently alter what functional or physical assessments we perform in the clinic to help hone in our immediate treatment. Yep, 100%. And that was gives me a great next question for you. You mentioned compression versus tension on yep. the uh, on the plantar fascia. Um, so, what's the difference? Like, just in in simple terms, what's the difference between compression and tension? And how do you tell which one is more of the driver in the in the pathology? Um, can there be both? And and then what does that tell us that we need to do? Good question. I like this. <laughs> um, okay, so. To answer the um, first question as far as can it be both, yes, you can definitely have a concurrent presentation. But when we're dealing with, and so first up, sort of I'll dial it back a little bit, especially when we look on social media and even our beliefs as clinicians, it's very easy to forget that compressive factors can actually drive the development of pathology. How most people see the development of plantar fasciopathy is a tensile-driven pathology. So we're just thinking that the arch is sort of flattening or dropping, and we've got this tension or pulling on the plantar fascia, that that will contribute to the development of the pathology, which it can. But where we've got the heel and then the plantar fascia inserts, when we've got the ground reaction forces, so when we're actually putting our heel to the ground, the emphasis or the origin of the plantar fascia, that's actually subject to bending forces. So you've got all this ground reaction force coming up and then it bends the insertion of it because with the insertion, it's more of a fibrocartilaginous 
insertion point because it needs to be strong and reinforced. It's much the same as how where our ligaments attach to bones, where our tendons attach to bone. It's got some fibrocartilage there because we're transitioning from soft collagenous tissue into an osseous insertion. So with that, we have, <clears throat> excuse me, the, um, yeah, so compressive factors can actually be a big driving factor. Now, with this, there's a couple of things that will hint towards if you are dealing with more of a compressive and or tensile driven pathology. And often we may not know for sure. And again, often there may be a concurrent presentation of both. You may have tensile and compressive elements, but identifying what the most like, well, not most likely driver, but the driver of the most important symptoms or relevant symptoms at that point in time is quite important. So to give a little bit of an idea, so paying attention to what they say, so the symptoms that they report, and also considering their risk factors and just their physical and clinical presentation. So if you've got someone who is a little bit older, and or may have a higher body weight um, or increased body mass index. And the sort of threshold for the risk factor here is a BMI over 30. So especially if we're older, that may be a bit more of a compressive driven one. If we're a little bit overweight, then again, that may contribute to a little bit more of a compressively driven pathology. And then our activities, either recreational or occupational. So are we spending long periods of time standing on hard surfaces or walking on hard surfaces? And then, so they're the risk factors that will give us a little bit of an idea of what we may be dealing with and then how they say it. So if people are reporting that it feels like they're walking on a stone bruise or if they're wearing shoes that are a lot more cushioned and comfortable or if they feel like when they're walking around at home on carpet versus on the tiles it's significantly more comfortable then chances are that's a bit more of a compressively driven pathology again there can be a little bit of a crossover but then with tensile driven pathologies oftentimes people if we're asking about uh, what are the symptoms what do you notice it may be that initial sort of when they first put their foot to the floor that kind of pulling sensation and then it warms up really quickly after a couple of steps or if they report oh when i move my foot into this position and often if it's moving into sort of the toe off um, position where we've got the digits dorsiflexed that may be indicating that it might be more of a tensile driven pathology and again you can have both but they would probably be some of the flags that I'd pay attention to initially to give a little bit of an idea on what we're dealing with. Yep. No, that makes, that makes sense. I got a question for you to follow up. Mm -hmm. What I tend to do in clinic or what I've started to do a lot more is when I'm asking someone about their pain, when they're walking, for example, we might be doing a, a gait assessment. I ask them, do you feel the pain is more when your heel hits the ground or is it as you, come over and push off through your toes is that um is that specific or, or sensitive do you feel or obviously probably hasn't been validated but um yeah that's that's what i like to to do and uh, and also with calf raises as well uh, if someone's loading up with a calf raise you may have them doing a, a plantar fascia calf raise with a with the fasciitis fighter or a towel um, and they're coming up onto their toes all the way through the concentric, all the way through the eccentric, there's no pain, but when the heel hits the ground, there's pain. So that, um, 
that tells me that it's probably more of a compressive injury more so than tensile. Again, don't know how valid that is, but that's just something I've found in clinic. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And so hone in on your point. Yes, it's with a lot of things, they haven't been studied, therefore they can't be validated. But then that's what medical and health practice is consistently evolving or constantly evolving because we still know that there is so much that we don't know. But it's one of um, those things that, yeah, if there's smoke, there's fire. So if someone's reporting something and it's consistent with other patterns or symptoms that we're aware of, then it's a best guess that, yes, that is likely what we're dealing with, which, yeah, it hasn't been validated, but they do appear to be somewhat, well, at least in my experience or anecdotally, um, self-reported symptoms like that and responses to certain functional movements and functional tests. It, I feel it does correlate quite well, yep. but again, it hasn't been validated so but i do use um their self-reported symptoms with certain movements exactly like you were describing mm -hmm. to help give an indication of where they may be sitting on the compression slash tension scale yep no that's good good to know <laughs> i could be a bit more confident with that with that now um but uh, i guess if we then get a bit more of an understanding as to whether it's a compressive versus a tensile issue um to load or not to load. So from a rehab point of view, um, and from there, we're probably thinking of like your plantar fascia loaded calf raise as an mm -hmm. example, um, but there's, there's a whole range of different exercises you could do. Yep. Um, uh, so whether it's compressive versus tensile, do we load, do we not load? And then this, the follow-up question from that will be, how do we use orthoses um, for whether it's tensile versus compressive? So we'll start with the, the loading first. Yep. Um, and we'll go from there. Yes, that's good. And this is again, um, why it's very important for us to assess their activity history and then their risk factors, and then have a little bit of an idea, even if we're not hundred percent correct, but have an idea of what the primary symptom or most relevant driver is because yes, if we think that, so say we've got compressive and tensile now. If we think back to the client that I was sort of describing, we've got an older and overweight client. So we may have in that presentation, they may have a little bit of a concurrent pathology, but the primary driver identification is quite important because if we've got someone who is chronically underloading, so they're not really active, they're not walking regularly, they're not engaging a lot of physical activity. So they may have some structural alterations within the plantar fascia that makes it less tensile load tolerant. So they may have that underlying load intolerance, but also because of their age and their body weight, they may have changes within the plantar heel fat pad that is actually making it more of a compressive driven pathology. So they may have both concurrently occurring, but the primary factor may be compressive. Now, if it's compressive and then we don't sort of factor that into the equation and we just jump straight into doing some rehab exercises that may actually flare the symptoms because we've got the primary driver that we haven't addressed so we haven't been able to calm down the pain in that situation so the compressive factor is still sitting there and then if it's tensile driven and it's just 
chronically load intolerant, but then we apply some load with say the high load strengthening of the plantar fascia, um, of the plantar fascia, those exercises, then we may actually overload that tissue as well. So then we've redlined both um, pathology drivers, if that makes sense. So if it's more compressive, and this is where our treatment triage comes into the equation. So you may be introducing some exercises, but I would, if it appears to be a little bit of both, but it's probably more compressive driven versus tensile, the tensile is just sort of a subset of all their other risk factors. It may be going with a very, very, very low dose of tensile loading exercises. So say like even just the heel rocker exercise on the fasciitis fighter but then focusing your initial treatment on the compressive elements, which may be uh, footwear, considering the surfaces that they're walking and standing on either at work or at home. Um, and then for the slow burn, as far as long-term management, it may be trying to address some of the other health-related factors. So if it's more compressive, compressive-driven pathologies sometimes don't need any physical rehabilitation at all, simply calming down the tissue because they may have relatively healthy tensile tolerance, but it may just be more compressively driven or it may be chronically underloaded in a tensile state. Either way, I would, if it appears to be more compressively driven, you focus on the compressive treatments and then cater to the tensile tolerance if you need to. But then if it's more tensilely driven, then it tends to be more focusing around the activities that they need to do or shouldn't be doing or should be doing less of. So if it's more tensilely driven, yes, they may have an intolerance to tensile load, but then this is where it's important to consider their chronic or very long-term activity history and their short-term activity history. Because if you've got someone who's chronically underloaded and then has just experienced an acute flare, they'll likely need some low-grade exercises that we gradually progress them up to changing their lifestyle and health behaviours for the long term to introduce ongoing frequent bouts of loading so they can build their tolerance. But then if we've got someone who it's quite a healthy fascia and then they've overloaded it, so they've rapidly increased their running loads, um, then it may be more tensilely driven, but their management plan may actually be reducing the load or taking movement out of the equation for a short period of time. So does that help answer that? It's a long word and answer, but does it help sort of give you a bit of an idea of where exercises may fit into the different drivers and what our considerations are? It does. And I think um, it's just really, what you're trying to say is it's just very important to, to take a really good, history it's a really good subjective history um, of all of their lifestyle factors all of the contributing factors that might have caused this pain and then identify whether there's a capacity gap that needs that needs addressing um, whether they need to start loading their plantar fascia um, i think it's very it's fraught with danger if we just get someone with plantar heel pain and we go oh straight away raf left protocol straight into <laughs> straight into loading them up um, plantar yep. fascia loaded calf raises. Um, I think that that study was fantastic and sort of introduced um, loading into a lot of podiatrists um, arsenal of things to do. But uh, yeah, it's important that we don't just rush to that because if they've had an acute flare up of pain from doing too much, then if you're adding extra loading on top of that, then it's, it's not going to, it's not going to help. It's only going to make things worse. So um, yeah, does that yeah. sound about right to summarize there? 
Yes. And then I'll say it's just, I'll, it's a good summary. I very much agree with, no, yeah, you took my 8,000 words and put it into <laughs> two sentences. But then it's not just with the exercise therapies. It's if we're jumping the gun and missing the relevant information, regardless of the treatment that we follow, like there's some clinics that I know of that literally on the first consult, they're booking people in for three sessions of shockwave, regardless of their clinical history. It might be a runner, it might be an older person. It might, it's shockwave, then orthoses, and then very little time is taken. And this is um, just speaking to my experience with some of the patients I've seen that have seen clinicians that have gone through this sort of protocol. And yeah, it just seems like there's hasn't been much time or attention paid to activity history, risk factors that's been skipped and just flown into the protocol that exists within a clinic. And it can be different for everyone and anyone, but going into shockwave, going into orthoses, whatever it is. And that's where you end up with patients that have a, a lot of frustration and losing faith in health practitioners, not just podiatrists, it exists for physios and chiros and other health mm -hmm. practitioners when it's not having the treatment that's being tailored to their individual driving factors. Yeah, and I feel like having treatments that may be inappropriate or ineffective for what they actually have going on and it can flare the problem. Yeah, 100%. I feel like shockwave therapy is going to be a whole uh, I was going to ask you a follow-up question about shockwave, but I feel like that could be a whole lecture, uh, a whole podcast episode in itself. Um, yep. Diamond. All right, we'll put a pin uh, in that one. Leave that one for now. But um, yeah, no, hundred percent agree. Really important that you get really good subjective history and then let that guide mm -hmm. what you're gonna what you're gonna do um, and and reflect on that. So I like if if I'm doing something for like three sessions with someone or let's say, for example, three weeks. Um, often I see people sooner than that, but let's say I'm seeing someone over three weeks for three sessions and then if they're not improving or, or in, some, in some degree, it may not be that their pain's improving, but you know, if they're functional, their strength's not improving, like I, I'm, I'm flipping over to try something else. Like um, I feel like you need to reflect on your treatment plan and, and what you're, what you're doing um, as, as you're going. And then if you're say, for example, if you're doing shockwave for an exit, for example, three, three sessions of shockwave, and then that doesn't have any improvement, then stop doing shockwave. <laughs> yeah. Do they really need another six sessions? Probably. Yeah, that's right. But um, same as with the loading, like if you're loading them up, if you're doing a plantar fascia loaded car phrase um, and you know, they're working through it over a course of three weeks, um, but, then but their pain is not improving, then you need to consider, well, what else is happening here? Yes. And to talk to your point that you mentioned briefly is it's not just pain, it's focusing on function as well, because especially in those pathologies of chronicity, um, sometimes pain can be a little bit slower to dissipate. So we may improve in function quite quickly and mm. then improvements in pain may come a little while after. But that's why um, I feel it's always important, especially right at the start, and I think we've spoken about this on a couple of podcasts, is always having an overarching treatment goal in mind. So right from the onset, what are we looking to achieve? And then that's where we sort of identify the capacity gap. So we have the desired capacity. So what activities they want to get back to that the problem's stopping them from being able to do. So that's a desired capacity. Then we assess their capacity what can they currently do in relation to that? 
And then that ide identifies the capacity gap. And then that's where our treatment plan formulation comes into play. Okay, how far removed are they from this? How many steps may we need to get there? So that becomes the macro overarching goal. And then the micro goals of what we're yeah looking to achieve between sessions or in the shorter term. So it may be improving the number of repetitions in the high load calf raise or the amount of minutes that they can run before symptoms onset, symptom onset, sorry. Um, yeah. yeah, so I just wanted to reflect back on that because yeah, goal identification is very, very important. And I feel that's also one of the missing pieces of the puzzle when you have these patients that are seeing practitioners having treatments that may not be helping them. And because if we're not constantly sort of reviewing where we are in relation to our goals, that's where our patients just get frustrated. They cancel their appointments. They don't come back because we've kind of lost sight of what we're actually working towards. Yep. Makes sense. So we've gone through compression versus tension. We've gone through whether to load or not to load. Um, and sort of the, and the last one we'll go through now is orthoses or no orthoses. I feel like the three of these topics sort of all intertwined, um, you know, one sort of leads to the other, leads to the other, um, yep. potentially. So yeah, let's tackle orthoses. Where do we, where do we start as <laughs> to deciding whether someone needs them, doesn't need them? Um, does anyone need them? Does everyone need them? Um, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, let's go through it. Let's Pandora's box this. Um, yeah, it, it's quite a, like, there's a lot of nuance to it. So the, the, we'll start with, does everyone need them? No. Um, do some people need them? Yes. And then the type of device that they need, that can vary between individuals. And so when I talk about the, it, it, it again comes down to if there's a capacity gap and if there's potential for this capacity gap to be perpetuated by a person's orthomechanical profile. So orthoses we can use as a load management device and it, so they can open up the sort of therapeutic window for having someone to be able to engage in more activities. So if we've got someone that orthomechanically we need to overcome a barrier. So orthoses can be scripted to address either of the pathology drivers, compressive and or tensile or both. Um, so then I think where we start to begin to think where orthoses may come into the equation is if we think about the compressive drivers first. So does the person have a thinner fat pad? Do they have fat pad dissipation or spreading when they're weight bearing? If that's the case, then they may need an orthoses because like cushioned footwear and changing the surfaces that they're standing on, so rubber mats at work, that can help but it still may, because if the fat pad's still dissipating within the shoe and shoes, they lose their responsiveness and cushioning over time. So if we have someone who their a thinning or dissipating fat pad is a primary driver for what we consider to be, or what we consider to be a driving factor for their pathology, then they may need an orthosis sooner rather than later with a really deep heel cup, try to compress that fat pad, limit the dissipation. So orthoses for a compressive driven pathology may come into the equation much much sooner mm -hmm. but then on the flip side if we've got someone who would say more a tensile driven pathology they may not need an orthotic device because there's so much of the tensile driven pathologies that we can overcome with exercise and functional restoration we can modify loads with footwear but 
if there continues to be a capacity gap. So we know that orthoses, they do decrease the tensile loads on the fascia and they can decrease the bending moments at the plantar fascial origin. So if someone, we can't get them over the line and there's a little bit of nuance to this, which I'll jump to in a second, but so compressively driven ones might come into the equation a bit sooner because a lot of those factors we can't modify as much. Mm-hmm. But if it's more tensile, we've got a lot more wiggle room for tissue adaptation to try and overcome that. So we may try exercise therapies first, load management, we may change footwear. If we find that with all of those, we still have some degree of capacity gap, then we may introduce orthoses. And these are general rules, like it does change for each patient, which it should change for each patient. But I tend to find personally that for tensile driven pathologies, orthoses will come into the equation much later because there's so many things that we can address that may negate the need for an orthosis prescription but if we do find so what i'm talking about if a capacity gap remains so let's say we're dealing with a runner so when we're running at different running speeds it does change the tensile loads exerted on the plantar fascia so if we've reached a ceiling of adaptation so someone might be able to only run at a certain running pace and their symptoms are fine but every time they try and go a above that, even with a progressively loading um, run exposure program or plyometric training, whatever exercises we're prescribing, if they're constantly reaching this ceiling of adaptation, it doesn't matter what we're prescribing, they just continue to have a symptom flare when they're trying to run at faster speeds, then we may introduce orthoses into the equation to help manage the tensile loads during running for that individual. So it's a very nuanced answer. It really depends on the clinical presentation. And then again, the orthoses script varies depending on the pathology driver or if there's the concurrent drivers. Yeah, 100%. I like to think about what what have they done so far as well. Like they might have been to see other clinicians and they've tried all sorts of things. Um, They might have been given some crappy little device from somewhere, like some some sort of prefab device um, that wouldn't even yeah suffice for anything but then you uh so then you know if they haven't tried orthoses before and they've they had they've had chronic symptoms for a long time well then yes to introduce an orthotic to try and sort of kick the pain in the guts a little bit um but then if someone comes in and they've um you know they've just had an acute flare-up if they're if they're an athlete if they're a runner for example and they're they've just had an acute flare-up of pain because they've increased their mileage or their or their intensity of running then um, you know, they haven't had orthoses for 30 years. Why do they need orthoses right now? Like you, you got to, <laughs> and I've made that, I've made that mistake once in like my first year, um, out, I had a patient come in to see us and, um, yeah, he was like a ultra like marathon runner and, um, yeah, he had plantar fasci- fasciitis and I just recommended a, uh, orthotic because you know taping helped so I was like oh an orthotic would help but then <laughs> I realized he's been doing this intense mileage for so long um, his, his capacity is so high already he's just had a, a sudden increase so yeah he doesn't need an orthotic <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's a learning experience for us but yeah. in saying that there are some people so some nuance to this because um, I've made that mistake too but we learn hopefully we learn um but in saying that, because it's, and this is that point that I alluded to before, is it that sort of patient-informed care, so giving them the option. So 
we'll use that example of your patient that was the ultra runner. So if we know that the taping helped and it sort of decreased the load so they could get back to their training loads a little bit quicker, a patient may opt for that. So oh, definitely. you don't 100%. have to yeah, hold off prescribing orthoses. If there's an avenue that the orthoses may help and it might get them back to their activities sooner, we can give them that option. And I think giving them that option instead of force feeding it down their throat for profit margins um, is important because there are some people that like being able to run consistently is their life. Like I know for me, I go insane if I'm not able to exercise most days. So if it's okay, you've got X, Y, Z, because we've considered all of their activity factors, their risk factors. Um, Okay. So, and, the strapping helped alleviate it we could take the option of like you strapping your feet every couple of days you may need to do this for a few weeks um, whilst we reduce your load and work on this or some people might go is there another option outside of strapping because i can't be bothered i have an allergy to tape all of these other factors we can go well an orthotic device might help you short term to get the pathology or the pain under control and then we reintroduce load. So it's, yeah, I think um, it's a good example that you used and it's the only difference, yeah, that there would be, which I'm certain that you would have learned from. So instead of it being the clinician's go-to recommendation for treatment, it may have been just a clinician's recommendation for a treatment option. Yep, hundred percent. Yeah, give them give them the options. Like let let them make an informed uh, choice as to what you're going to do. Um, yep. Yeah, I love orthoses. Definitely not bashing orthoses. I love prescribing them. I feel it's a real it's a real art and science as well. But um, yeah, definitely just got to consider consider all things and 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 have that discussion with people. If you feel as though they could benefit from orthotic, then um, sometimes your um, yeah, not really doing your job well if you don't offer it as an option because because they they could benefit from it um, definitely at least bring it at least bring it up in conversation um, as being a p- possible option and explain why you're perhaps not leaning towards it right now um, and then that that can pre-frame them in say a couple of weeks time if things aren't progressing you can be like okay well then you know we may want to consider an orthotic now um, yep yeah I think it's a bit um, a bit uh, iffy or, or almost rude sometimes to bring up the orthotic as an option three or four weeks down the track um, when they, if you haven't mentioned it previously. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And that's a very good point. I think, um, and that's one of the things that if we kind of lean on uh, Matt Cotchett's work where it's the, um, Oh, the, I can't remember the title of the paper. I should remember the title of it because I refer to it so much for the course. Um, the key elements for quality care specifically to plantar fasciopathy. And like one of the reported things that patients want is an understanding of the different treatment options that are available to them. So I think, yeah, at the onset, um, we don't need to go I list every single thing. Like, ultrasound therapy because that doesn't work, Um, laser therapy, dry needling, all of these things, but the evidence-based treatments that will potentially work and are relevant to their clinical presentation, 
giving them a little bit of an outline and it also gives you a bit of a buffer as far as expectations instead of so if we try one treatment option and then we're not getting the outcome sometimes a patient may not come back because they go oh well they gave me this one treatment it didn't work therefore they're useless if we go okay these are the potential treatment options that may help your clinical presentation it may be orthoses exercises changing footwear load management whatever it is okay but the reason i'm recommending this and this first is because of your presentation and this will likely get us over the line but if that doesn't work or this might help accentuate or fast track the process we may introduce orthoses or changing shoes or getting a second pair of shoes um so yeah i agree with you that giving them a little bit of an idea of what all elements of their treatment may focus on uh, or may become part of their treatment throughout the whole treatment journey is a good approach initially but then explaining to them the role of the treatment and then what you're leaning towards initially and because it gives you a buffer because if they know all right we're going to try these two things but if that doesn't work jackson or talisha knows that well they've given me these options that there's also option b c and d that we can try so all hope isn't lost if things don't go to plan in the first or second session yep 100 i think that come it's just a skill in communication and you'll develop it with experience as well um and yeah there's there's so much there that we could could unpack like i feel like there's definitely a part two here somewhere that we could go into plantar heel pain again but um i think that's a really good really good summary like some key points of what you need to what you need to know compression versus tension um to load or not to load and then the where do orthotics come into it as well um how would you like to summarize yourself, Talisha? Because you've gone through quite a fair bit there. Just a few key points for us. I reckon the best way to summarize it is by we've got a free resource that I've created that's, I call it the plantar fasciopathy rehab guide or rehab decision tool. And it's literally a framework I've stepped out that follows the steps of what we should be asking, what we should be considering. Um, because I think that will revisit or allow people to revisit this entire podcast episode really, really well and have it stepped out in a process. But to summarize, when we're dealing with not just plantar fasciopathy, but any presentation or musculoskeletal presentation, it's always important to start with getting to know the patient. So the subjective history, their activity history, um, exploring their relevant risk and health factors that's where we need to start because if we miss that information at the start then it can set us off down the completely wrong treatment path and that's what leads to wasted time wasted money patient frustration patient attrition and it's just not good so if we go back to basics ask the right questions that will set you up for being able to develop your really individualized goal orientated management plans that there will always be instances where things don't go to plan in musculoskeletal rehab. That's the nature of the beast. But the more time we take initially to be considered in our approach relative to the individual, that's how we set ourselves and our clients up for success long-term. Yeah. Do away with protocols. You can have, you can have uh, frameworks, but uh, yeah, everything needs to be clinically justified. <laughs> yes. That's an even better summary. <laughs> 
yeah. summarize my summary. <laughs> there we go. Well, um, yeah, if anyone wants to find out more about that course, uh, which we've just launched this week, uh, the head to again, progressivepodiatryproject.com slash PF masterclass. Um, really looking forward to delving into it myself a bit deeper. And um, yeah, it's, 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 it's going to answer all of these questions that we've gone through in a lot more detail as well and, and be really more um, help you help to give you a bit more confidence around treating plantar fasciopathy. Um, so yeah, thanks. Thanks again, Talisha. And we'll uh, catch you guys at the next episode. Awesome. Thanks, Jackson. <laughs>